This week, we discuss the tale of the Dollmakers. Badge. On the captured souls. Under the full moon. Whilst hearing the howls of the hungry hounds. Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. So, with Tale of the Dollmaker... We have another Betty Ann story, uh, one of my favorite Midnight Society members by far. And Betty Ann is telling us the story of what seems to be at first a very innocuous, easy uh, little topic, which is that she brings a doll with her to the meeting. And this is a typical type of uh, porcelain doll that we're talking about in this episode, which I think a lot of people find to be a little bit unnerving. Tucker, however, uh, Gary's little brother in the Midnight Society, seems to think that this isn't going to be very scary and tries to pretend like he's asleep. Well, Betty Ann begins the story, and we hear about a girl named Melissa. Now, Melissa has gone off to visit with her Aunt Sally and her Uncle Pete, and we are told that she normally has a very good friend there named Susan Henderson. But when she arrives, her aunt and uncle are very evasive about the whereabouts of Susan and suggest that she just simply moved away with her family. But as Melissa is out in the yard playing, she sees something in the window of Susan's house next door and goes over to investigate. Now, as often happens in Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes, we begin our story with a bit of breaking and entering, uh, which apparently was a pretty normal practice uh, at this point in time, uh, as we see this happen in a number of episodes. But Melissa goes into Sally's house only to be surprised by her aunt Sally not too long after going inside and being demanded to return back to her own house. There's clearly something going on, and Susan's fate is maybe not as clear as her aunt and uncle seemed to make it out to be that she moved away. In reality, there's something creepy going on with the dollhouse that is left behind. So, before I go any further, I have to ask you, Paul, what are your feelings about porcelain dolls? Do they creep you out, or are they just a harmless toy? Well, to me, <laughs> they're generally terrifying. And apparently, they used to be big, though. I actually have a couple in my house currently, but that's not a result of me but a result of my mom. And so growing up, she collected a bunch of different things because I think ultimately she thought they'd be worth a lot. So kind of how I collect cards or you know memorabilia, games of some sort. She collected porcelain dolls and, and other objects. She stashed Tickle Me Elmo's <laughs> and Furbies. Porcelain dolls were another one of those things. And this actually happened within the last year. It's pretty recent. But she started decluttering stuff from her house, and she brought down these porcelain dolls to give to my daughter, which is an amazing gesture. It's very cute. And she beamed. I mean, she was so excited about these dolls. They were beautiful to her. And these were dolls that were made specifically for collecting. So I must imagine they were pretty big because they had the X number out of whatever number. So this is 34 out of 120 or whatever, and they had a name. So there were only a select amount of these dolls ever issued. 
and she brought them down. And, you know, I remember being in the living room and she brought them down to G, my daughter, and she was so excited to see them. Oddly enough, my older brother was there and he, <laughs> she was beaming and he decided he was going to look up each of these porcelain dolls and find out their value currently. And so he Googled them and checked Amazon and eBay and he declared the value of these dolls. Unfortunately, the dolls did not appreciate in value whatsoever. They were around the exact same price that she had originally purchased them in. And I saw the beam emanating from her face diminished. She was <laughs> disheartened. Oh, now, man. when I was reacting, I was like, wow, mom, that's amazing. This is great. Such a great gesture. My older brother decided to actually look up the value and unfortunately it was not the the gold mine she had thought it would be but so you could say that he, that he shattered the uh, her dreams in that moment much he like did. a broken porcelain doll <laughs> i suppose you could say he did he did shatter the dream and but they're beautiful i mean they're nice dolls they're beautiful and mom if you're listening she does treasure them to this day she loves them she's very careful about them but it must have been big for my mom to invest i mean what are your thoughts on on porcelain dolls? Yeah, I realistically, uh, I don't have much history with them. I uh, grew up like as an only child, and, and so I didn't really have sisters uh, that w- would have had porcelain dolls. And I don't really know of anyone in my family that collected them. I will say that they can be a little bit off-putting, depending on... The design, I mean, I think my feelings toward porcelain dolls have mainly been shaped by horror films and by, at an earlier uh, age, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Uh, So sort of the idea that they've always been presented as being creepy or terrifying or possessed, and so then you start to think about it that way. I don't know if I would have otherwise, but that being said, I can't shake the idea now and One thing that's definitely unnerving are little girls turning into dolls that are a half-human, half-doll hybrid, which is what we see with Susan in this episode. So I guess that alone is pretty scary. Well, if you look at dolls in general, the uh, the porcelain dolls, they don't move, really. Um, I think that's part of the problem with them, is they're designed, I mean... My daughter, she has them stationed in a shelf and she won't move them. I mean, it's because they're so delicate versus a Barbie where you you play and you imagine. And so porcelain dolls, they basically sit there in the same spot without moving. You, you almost can't play with them because you don't, you don't want to break them because they're so well done. And so that's what's kind of creepy about them. And so that's that's the ordinary. And then when they move, you're like, oh, oh my gosh, it, it changes. The idea of dolls uh, moving on their own, you know, and not in a Toy Story kind of way, but in a horror sort of way, I think is is a pretty well-established type of idea. And there is something unnerving, I guess, because they have the look of being human to an extent, and you can imagine what if this thing came to life. You can kind of picture it, and it's it's a little bit strange. Now, in this particular episode, it seems like a lot of it is centered around that Aunt Sally and Uncle Pete are trying to keep Melissa away from the house. And at first, you may just assume it's because, you know, she's breaking into a house that she's not supposed to be in. But her aunt very early on makes a comment that where she says, I'd rather you kept away after what happened. It's just that I'd rather you kept away after what happened. After what? What happened? Aunt Sally, what happened? This clearly plants some seeds of doubt as to, okay, wait, what's actually going on? 
What I kept wondering is her aunt and uncle seem to be dead set against her going in there for obvious reasons, but does that mean that they suspect that Susan is trapped inside and they're not doing anything? Well, the dad mentions essentially a conspiracy theory where he says, It was the house that got her. It seems he knows, but the aunt definitely is very against that concept. At the same time, in order to bring her into the house, the episode does a very conscientious decision to make these aunts and uncles the most boring as possible to, to pique her interest into doing other things. And so the aunt says, Hey, I'm going to go to bingo. The uncle says, Hey, I'm going to go work on the septic tank. <laughs> septic tank. That's his decision. And so what else would you do if you're a little girl there? Your, your, your neighbor's gone. I would want to investigate too. I do have to defend um, bingo for a second. Well, I wanted uh, to discuss I, this. I wanted yeah. to discuss this. Okay. Because I, I did spend many, many a day uh, with my grandma playing bingo at various, uh, you know, state fairs, um, you know, halls or other locations where, where it could be found. So as to the bingo, I probably would have taken her up on it. Now the septic tank. I got some work to do on the septic tank. Want to lend a hand? I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> Uncle Pete clearly is a little bit out of touch. Well, I, I think the aunt's out of touch. What's the deal with bingo? Why is bingo so popular? I mean, it's, it's pure RNG, random number generation. It's luck. There's nothing there. And yet it's very popular. I remember being in grade school, helping at the nursing home. That's what they did. And so I was curious, what's the deal with bingo, number one? And number two, when we're older, what will be our bingo? I think it might be something like Settlers of Catan, maybe one of the old uh, console games. It, it definitely won't be bingo, though, because bingo, I mean, you just sit there, right? What's the appeal of bingo to you? Frankly, it was because you could win money. It was basically the only form of gambling that you could do as a child. So, like, you'd go in there, you know, your grandmother gives you, like, some money to spend on the cards or whatever, and you had a chance you could walk out of there with some cold, hard cash. I mean, so that's that's always, you know, a big part of it there. As to what our bingo would be, I think you're right. It could be some type of tabletop game could be clearly I think we'll still be playing video games and it'll be old consoles that no one's played in you know 60 years at that point so there's always that possibility I could see a lot of different variations I'd be I'd be fine with sellers bingo yeah I, I guess it is gambling it's at its finest and yep. kind of relaxed and casual and I could I could see people getting behind that so something else that I had to ask you about, um, and this goes on this topic that I've been alluding to a few times now about uh, this little girl just busting into this neighbor's house. Toward the end, when she goes in, when she has, because eventually as the story goes on, she gets the idea that Susan is still in the house. You know, there's this strange doorway that when she tries to open it, her uncle snatches her away at the last second. We realize at some point that it's connected with the dollhouse that's been left behind in the attic. And it appears when you go through this door, like you'll just fall uh, to your death, like um, from the top story of the house. But in reality, when you step through, you enter into the dollhouse. And whenever she goes in toward the end where she's really determined that she's going to go get her friend out, she brings a hammer with her and smashes open the glass of the door so that she can get into the house. And I was just thinking, like, first of all, okay, commitment, I respect that. But also, I don't 
I don't know, like how many little girls would do that? I guess if she was convinced her friend was there. The other thing she brings with her is a ball of yarn, which I have to give her some credit. That was a, that was a pretty good idea so that she'd be able to find her way back out. Doesn't work out for her, but good idea nonetheless. I don't know, this would never have remotely entered the realm of possibility for me. The idea that I could smash open a door in order to get into a house. I don't know, maybe I was just too much of a rule follower. Well, I, I gotta blame the ant. I mean, so when, when the when the first break-in happens, she walks through the front door. I mean, she walks in. It's unlocked. And the ant says, listen, I was given this task. I do not take it lightly. Why, why is the door unlocked? And oddly enough, that's the task she takes lightly. She doesn't care about raising this little girl that she's, that she's responsible for. Let's her go in the dark of night with a, with a set of keys, able to grab a hammer out of a random drawer while sleeping, you know, talking about this event while she's in the other room. Like she doesn't care about any of that stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've always liked the concept of, of maybe investigating a, an abandoned home. Um, I've never done it though. I've never actually done it. I, I always feel like you, sh- you just shouldn't do that. And then on top of that, like you were talking about the, um, the sort of, neglectful way in which the aunt and uncle go about trying to protect her from from this at one point like the uh the uncle had had boarded up the doorway that leads into the dollhouse he put a board over it he did the weakest job of nailing up a board i have ever seen this little girl takes her i think it was the hammer maybe and just like pries it off as if it's no problem it just like falls right off of the door like is uncle pete does he have the strength of a five-year-old like what what's happening <laughs> yeah he's in he's entrusted with 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 solidifying that because here's the thing i i think they should be i don't say arrested but like he listen so he pulls her away from the dollhouse and that's what we see right we see her entering the dollhouse he says oh no no no, no. pulls her out what he sees is her walking out of a window okay that's a suicide attempt that's her walking out of a window into nothingness to fall toward her death, right? There's no intervention. There's no treatment, nothing at all, except him with his hammer to, to, to put planks on the door. And then he fails to do even that. That makes me wonder if he, cause like he was, he was railing on about ranting about how it's the dollhouse. It's the doll. Like that's why Susan's disappeared. It makes me wonder, like, did he suspect that that's what was really going on? I don't know. Or was he just totally neglectful? It could have been one or the, it could have been both of those things. I don't know. But so there are a lot of questions there, but you know, this is a sort of a common thing in kids shows. I think where if the adults are, too vigilant if if they're too good at doing their job then nothing would happen <laughs> in the story uh and in this particular case of course susan would be left to turn into a doll completely now whenever melissa gets inside finally and she's going after uh susan and she she locates her you see that she's sort of part turned into a doll. And the thing that really sticks in my mind is how at one, at one point, uh, Melissa is trying to move this large um, cabinet or bookcase or something, which is obstructing where she needs to go in the house. And she goes back to try to get Susan to help her move it. And Susan's now porcelain hand falls off because she is turning into a doll. I think that moment is probably what sticks with a lot of people and the idea of her actually turning. And then, of course, we see Melissa's skin start to turn a little bit as she's in there a bit longer. 
do you were, do you think that was an effective sort of effect or the way that they portrayed the turning into the doll? Yeah, I think the effect was well done. I think what hit with me the most was her actually going in the dollhouse because I hearken back to what we talked about with the uncle about her, and that's all I was thinking of was her walking out into an you know the 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 fall onto the grass. And so as she stepped into the dollhouse, I was thinking from the adult perspective of she's going to fall. The dollhouse isn't real. Obviously this is her imagination. It's some spirit guiding her to, to, to jump off this ledge. And I, I was scared. I was like, she's going to fall. And so that's what I was thinking of. So that's, that's what really to me was the scariest part. Yeah. I love the, the porcelain doll effects that as a kid, I probably would, would affect more. Cause you wouldn't believe as, you know, as a kid, you'd believe more that you could enter a doll magical dollhouse or whatnot. Yeah. That hand was great. And I honestly, I wanted them to keep with that. And so when Susan gets out of the dollhouse, I wanted her to be a doll. I didn't want her to come back to be human. I wanted her to be transformed. I think that would have been the cool ending as an adult, probably as a kid would be a little bit too terrifying. How did you, how did you feel about it resolving at the end? Did you feel that you wanted Susan to come back as a kid and have have that happy ending? Because I was leaning more towards, I wanted her to be the, the, the doll. She had been there so long that I think that would have been kind of cool of her being the doll with, with the main character. Are you afraid of the dark often will do those little darker twists? Uh, and oh, in this one, it's tough, probably because it's a little girl. I don't know. I was okay with the happy ending. I thought one thing that was interesting from a logical point of view that I'm not quite sure how you explain, you know, and this is kind of funny in like a morbid kind of way, like when her hand falls off, then Melissa picks it up and puts it into Susan's pocket. She like drops it into the pocket on her coat that she's wearing. And then whenever they quote you know jump out of the house or it looks like they're gonna fall but they just you know they end up back in reality again her hand is reattached which is strange because it was in her pocket it wasn't on her person so like logically if the rest of her came back the hand should have remained a doll hand or have been a or been a human hand in her pocket or remained a doll hand maybe because it wasn't attached to her so if you wanted to go for a little bit of a darker ending where maybe she still gets out but maybe that hand is still a doll hand and she let they find it in her pocket afterwards maybe that would be a way to go maybe still a little bit gross you know the idea of the hand coming off but it's not like you would see it you just see it as a porcelain hand so they probably could have gotten away with it so that i don't know if you what do you think about that i think you should have written the episode because i think that's a really good compromise <laughs> between acknowledging the suffering she went through and where she's at now. I think that'd be a really great compromise. She's just remade completely. If you're going to go with the entirely happy ending, I wanted to see the parents. I mean, I wanted to see the parents reunited. They just didn't do that. <laughs> like they did they didn't bring the parents back to the house to say, "Hey, here's your daughter. You've been who knows what they've been going through." And they just ignore it completely. It's it's more about Melissa, "Hey, I saved her." I disappeared just like Susan, and I found her. What are you saying? Look and the aunt and uncle coming together versus the parents of Susan coming together and saying, hey, we got our daughter back. I mean, if you're going to go with the happy ending, why not bring the parents in there? I agree. I think that would have added an, 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 a more of an emotional punch to the end, especially if you were going for, or really for either ending, for the slightly darker ending or the happy ending. It still would be better. One thing that I that I did want to mention, too, is that at the end, whenever it goes back to the Midnight Society, um, Betty Ann, you know, gets 
the last laugh on Tucker by leaving behind this doll that looks like him. I like to see that because I've got to, I've got to be honest with you. Tucker is a punk. Like he is the worst member of the Midnight Society, which is unfortunate because when they do the reboot seasons, um, six and seven, he is the only returning member because Gary was the leader and Tucker is his little brother. But Betty Ann, though, she puts up with a lot from Tucker throughout this because at first he comes in and he's all excited because Gary told him that Betty Ann tells really weird interesting stories when she presents the doll he's like oh this is going to be boring this dolls are dumb i'm going to fall asleep now and then he pretends like he's going to sleep. he's like somebody wake me up when it gets interesting and i just couldn't take it it was frustrating i don't know if he needs to pretend like he's the big man on campus he's too cool for dolls he's too tough for dolls whatever it is but at the end she gets him back you know i just have to say like if you look at betty ann's uh, discography as it is if you look at her her pedigree as a Midnight Society member. She has some real good stories in there. And we already talked about the tale of laughing in the dark in another episode. Um, there's another one on here, which I love, which we haven't talked about yet, which is the tale of the nightly neighbors. She's done uh, the doll maker, which we were just talking about. And another one, which is very creepy called the ghastly grinner. I think once we go through all of the Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes, we should revisit who was the best storyteller. Do you have any inklings about who your favorite Midnight Society member is? I mean, now that we've been revisiting this for some time. I don't, but I will go back and and think about it. Because I, I guess from my perspective, why do you think they give certain characters certain episodes? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I believe there are some commonalities and off the fly, I don't remember all of them. The one that's the most obvious is that Frank always tells the Dr. Vink episode. <laughs> he always tells the Vink stories. Um, but there are some other common threads, like Betty Ann's tend to be a little bit weirder, a little bit more. And I think there might be some other threads, but yeah, I'll have to I'll have to double check. But I've read about it before that certain members might have certain um, tendencies in their storytelling, which I think is interesting. I mean, because you could think of the Midnight Society as nothing more than just like a framing device for the episodes, but I think that it's there's a little bit more to the relationships that they have with each other and to the stories that sometimes people don't that talk about Are You Afraid of the Dark don't always think about. They tend to we tend to hear more about the you know the episodes within, but not so much the members. So I find that a little interesting. All right. So before we go into our ratings, the family of Susan, they leave the house based on her disappearance do you would you leave the house with a traumatic event like that wow um no just mainly for financial reasons like who can afford to just leave a house like it's it's your own it's your house like do you have a mortgage is it paid off you know let's say that i have the money and then that's not an not an issue i guess it would depend what i thought happened or how much i thought the house was to, like if i believed that the house was to blame like if they really thought the house took her then yeah i'd probably leave but then that begs the question wouldn't you stay and try to find a solution like did wouldn't they be like if they suspected the dollhouse was involved the doorway was involved like the uncle seemed to like you know wouldn't they stay behind and 
try to solve the mystery? I mean, maybe adults can't can't see it, but then why is the uncle all suspicious about everything? So I don't know. I mean, what's yeah, your what's your take? Yeah, the uncle. I mean, the uncle being very confident. It seemed it was the dollhouse for them not to investigate. For them to leave the dollhouse in the attic seems very strange to me. And well, yeah, because if they left it there and like everything else in the house was covered over with sheets and things. And so like clearly they thought that there was something special about it. I, I don't know. It just seems fishy to me. Well, we'll never know. We'll never know the uncle's <laughs> perspective. He, he doesn't get to offer his opinion. As to, hey, why did you think this? It's just not important enough, I guess. They they explored every avenue, did all the searches they could, and never w- went to the uncle because, hey, the uncle is a representation of imagination and and the supernatural, and so we can't we can't investigate that. So, or just nobody listens to the guy because he's constantly inviting people to watch him work on the septic tank, and oh, so gosh. nobody <laughs> just nobody in the town like t- trusts his. He's like the like the crazy old man of the town or something, you know. The septic tank might. Be better than bingo because at least set the tank you can learn a little bit bingo is is meaningless i would argue not if you win <laughs> <laughs> not if you win Fair enough. you you win a bingo you just got yourself you know a new uh like pre-owned uh you know genesis or super nintendo game man so think, of, yeah, think about it that way <laughs> fair enough <laughs> all right so w- what did you rate this episode all right so um i used no, I think you did a different method here where you um, kind of, you know, came just came up with your ratings off the top of your head. I consulted uh, IMDb uh, before I made my ratings, uh, which to me was helpful because sometimes it was just really hard to kind of get your bearings. So this one is rated an 8.6 on IMDb, and I think that's perfect. I can't think of a reason to bump it up or to knock it down. It's not my absolute top tier of Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes, so I'm not going to bump it up to an A, but I think it's a very solid B, you know, grade story. Lots of creepy ideas, um, good doll effect, uh, interesting idea with the girl having to sort of have the faith to go into the door or not go into the door and take the leap at the end. And even though the aunt and uncle, we kind of ragged on them throughout that, like they were kind of fun. Like I, I enjoyed the actors, um, that played them, I thought they really went for it. They went for the emotionality of it. Happy ending, which I think works. Uh, I do agree that it could have been interesting, like if her hand was was still like a doll hand or something. But yeah, I, I think so I think B is is good on, on here. So I'll, I'll kick it over to you. I gave it an eight point zero. And to clarify, to clarify, I again we rate this from a ten being the best to an F. So ten being an A, five being an F. I decided this time around what I wanted to do was to rate things without consulting IMDb to remove my bias from it. And some results I I disagreed with to be honest, but I just went with my gut and based on the first episodes, and I said let's see what we want to do. So I feel I feel like eight's honestly not that bad. I'm I'm actually pretty fine with this. I think the reason I was a little bit lower was because I was I was super critical of the aunt and uncle a lot more than I think most would. I was critical of their care of of their niece and their malfeasance in letting her do what they want to do. I understand your perspective that hey, if if she can't do her malfeasance, you don't have an episode. I get that, but I, th- that's what I was thinking about while watching the episode. And again, I, I kind of wanted it to be more of Twilight Zone where it was like a, a bad ending. I kind of wanted the bad ending here where it wasn't, hey, everything's fine. I mean, she was gone for so long. She, 
think of, I mean, again, the aunt is crying, describing this disappearance. She's crying about it. And so to go from that to the end is, oh, she's back and everyone's happy. We have no resolution about how she, how, how the girl's affected, Susan. She's just fine. No ramifications from that. We have nothing from the parents about their trauma. And I, I, I just felt it was too quick of an ending to resolve the clear trauma that was presented. And so that's why I gave it an 8.0. I agree with the effects. I agree with the, the concept of entering a dollhouse or entering a different world and you're becoming part of the dollhouse. I, I liked a lot of that. I love the entrance into, into the dollhouse. But again, I, I just felt it was too much of a convenient ending to just wrap it up that quickly. And so that's why I gave it 8.0. But again, it's a B. It's a, and that's what you said it deserved was a B. Next up, we have the Tale of Badge. Now, the Tale of Badge tells the story of a coming-of-age member of a long line of witches. Gwen, the main character, starts off as a nobody, but ultimately, on her 16th birthday, she finds out she is a very special witch. She must then use her powers to continue the family tradition to keep Badge in check, which of course is symbolic of her using her set-a-wind magic for good and not evil. What were your initial thoughts on this? This one I remember from being a kid, from seeing it uh, to an extent. I don't remember all of the details, but it came back to me pretty well once I watched through it again. So I will say the premise of it sounds excellent. This idea of this line of witches, the grandma, they refer to her as Willie throughout the episode. Uh, and Gwen, you know, the main character, her granddaughter, passing on that magic, I think is really cool. I'm really big into anything with magic. I'm big into uh, movies and stories and even history that involves witches. I favorite topic of mine. Um, I've been to Salem, Massachusetts twice because of that obsession that I have about those sorts of topics. So that was all really cool. But something about this episode didn't click for me as much as I would have preferred. And now this isn't, this is by far not going to be like, if you remember from our first Are You Afraid of the Dark podcast talking about the tale of the Manaha. Not to that extent, but there are some things that I felt were a little bit weaker in this one. One thing just to point out is that Gwen's little brother, his name is Trevor. He is insufferable. I cannot stand this kid. And this is often a problem with child acting, but it's not even so much the acting. It's just his, the way his character is written. Uh, he's always like at the very beginning, Gwen is having her birthday party. It's just that it's my birthday. And sometimes I feel like, you know, it doesn't really matter. And Trevor comes in, some kind of prize he won at the science fair and his her parents just totally forget that Gwen exists and they start fawning over Trevor then they force Gwen on her birthday to babysit Trevor while they go to the school because they have to have a conference about her quitting band I just had a call from your band instructor what's the matter Gwen quit the band today. Which just, you know, I'm not going to get too much into the details. Suffice to say that I know, I know a fair amount about education and how the education system works. And that is not a thing that would happen in the middle of the night 
on a random night. You're not going to be called to the school to have a conference because your daughter quit the band. But anyway, because that all happens, it leads to the situation where um, Trevor goes and opens up a box that he's not supposed to. And the box has the name Badge on, on the front. And Gwen's grandmother was just about to introduce her to this, to show her the box and to introduce her to her heritage as a witch. But then, because everything gets interrupted, uh, and then Willie has to go off, her grandma, uh, on a meeting she has to leave for, and so the kids are left at home, and then Trevor, of course, goes and opens up this box and releases uh, this creature. And just all throughout the whole um, that initial setup, I was just thinking what a jerk her little brother was. So I'm not a fan of that part of it. It might be pretty realistic. As I said before, I don't have any siblings, but you do. So I'm curious what your take on Trevor was. No, that's not that's not realistic. You know, it's not. And obviously the Raiders were doing it to set up the story, which is, hey, here's this successful brother. You know, he's a, an award winner or whatever, and they love him more because he's accomplished more. It's all the setup. The main character, Gwen, is being a loser or a failure. So that way, when she becomes revealed as a witch, she becomes more prominent. So I think it was it was about beating her down to build her up. And, you know, that, that's like, you know, Harry Potter to me. It's like you, you have Harry Potter being this guy stuck in a cupboard who's nobody. But in reality, he's the most important wizard in the world. And that's a fun story to tell. And so I think, yeah, I think it was a, a deliberate attempt to make him be a lot worse than what he was in order to allow the end to make a lot more sense, especially because she ends up saving him, to be honest, and puts her in a really good position. They do kind of lean into this idea that, that Gwen isn't as smart as her brother, which, I don't know, it makes her look kind of bad. There's this one moment where when Willie is leaving, she tries to tell Trevor not to do anything dumb and not to cause trouble. But what she does is she says a phrase in Latin to him, which translates as first do no harm, which is interesting because that's actually a thing that you hear in a lot of um, like witchcraft-based circles that sort of in certain like um, earth religions and things. But anyway, um, he knows what she's saying. And Gwen is like, it's not my fault. I don't speak Greek. And he's like, it's not Greek. It's Latin. And then a little bit later on, Gwen ends up opening up the door whenever it's actually this creature that is trying to get in. She actually falls for this trick that it's somehow that it's her grandma that's behind the door, which I think was pretty obvious that it was not her grandma. And then even later on, whenever Gwen gets her box that says badge on it and there's the, the sort of like flute inside and everything she needs to play the instrument at the end and she's sort of stumped like oh what am I supposed to play what do I do if you look at the front of the box if you were in the band like it claims that she was or you were in any kind of music program ever it spells out the notes right on the front badge are the notes like it's a it's a it's a scale with the notes right there and so but that's that's the thing though she quit the band because she was bad right and it's it leads us to believe that she feels bad about herself because oh you're actually good you just think you're bad maybe she just was actually really bad at band <laughs> and that's why she quit maybe she was actually terrible and no matter what she did she could never understand anything 
Isn't that a, isn't that a possibility? I mean, it is. It is. So, so like she just couldn't read music, no matter what she did, which would explain why she couldn't play because you kind of need to be able to read the notes. So, but you know, one other thing that I wanted to get your opinion on is the creature in this one, who is known by the name of Badge. I, I'm torn on if this is a good or a bad monster. Is I mean, there he's evil, but is he a good like looking monster or not? And I, I'm I'm going both ways on it. At first. I thought that he kind of looked like a cat or like some kind of feline type uh, creature. But then they explain that he's a goblin, and he sure doesn't look like any goblin I've seen in Lord of the Rings. So I don't know what you thought about the monster. Yeah, I'm just as conflicted. I mean, I thought he was a rat. I thought he was like a mouse of some sort. Mm-hmm. And it's well done in that he's scary. And I really love the scene of the garden. It was horrifying with the hanging skeletons. I love the, again, I love the makeup, but his voice, the Yoda impression. Free I am drew me out of that. I mean, I was terrified going into the garden and then he starts talking like Yoda. Bad phrasing made he. Everything he said was, I mean, it was Yoda and I'm trying to be scared. I'm trying to enter into into this terrible dungeon with hanging skeletons and he's, I'm kind of laughing at what he's saying, right? I mean, and so I wondered, did, did the actor choose that? the director what, what were your thoughts on that dude the the, the yoda thing just no it, uh, i wrote that down too that he that he talked like yoda and it, it it doesn't help any kid that was watching that would have known yoda and maybe that's what they were they just wanted to go for that i think the idea was that he was supposed to talk in sort of a like a riddling type way and then maybe that's what they were going for but you can understand what yoda says it's just mixed up grammar and i don't think it enhances his scariness i agree about the skeletons the forest the idea that he's going to hang people there until they waste away i mean pretty terrifying pretty good fantasy world that you know that she goes into there that that was a good part of it and that's kind of the redeeming element of the story for me is that i favor quite a lot anything that goes into the realm of magic and that element of it i thought was great but then yeah that choice or that writing whatever it was definitely didn't help yeah so i'm going to have brought up the uh the highlights of the story because that was the highlight for me because i felt this story was all out of sorts the first thing that made any real sense to me in this story was when gwen saves her brother and says and again this is when the grandma's there and she says willie i don't think i really understand what happened and that is the very end of the episode and the first thing that i really understood about the episode because the writers didn't tie anything in beforehand we have no idea what the box is why it's important why the brother summons the spirit why the you know what the red gem is for who the spirit is, obviously we later learn that it's it's badge. Literally nothing is explained in the end. And I know you said, hey, you know, the you know, the grandma was interrupted, but we had no idea what the first two thirds of the show were until the very end of the show. And I it's a huge pet peeve of mine with shows and movies where they do this, where they'll spend all this time just confusing you and then try to solve it at the very end and and presume it's a twist of some sort. That's not a twist. Leaving you in complete ignorance and then trying to try to explain it with like one minute of dialogue, to me, that's not a twist. That, that that's just poor writing. 
So I had no connection to the first two thirds of the show because nothing was explained. I had no idea why anything was happening. The, Did the you? Am through, I wrong on this? And, well, I remembered some of it from childhood, but I will say that one thing I forgot was that whole, the whole way through, whenever Badge appears, he's demanding that Gwen give him the setter wind. The setter wind. And... I didn't know what that was. I couldn't remember what he was saying or what that was supposed to be. And they don't explain that, like you said, until they like tie it in later. So at the end, one other thing I wanted to mention is that Badge gets sucked into this stone that accompanies like the whistle that's that's in the in the box. And then essentially then it's Gwen's job to, I guess, protect the box, you know, because she does find this book in the house and she ends up realizing that she's like the next in the line of these witches there's this effect where he gets sucked into it and then now he's like trapped in there and so her brother is like that's that's it that's all he gets to do or that's all um Gwen gets to do is she gets to babysit this guy for the rest of her life and I did enjoy that Willie kind of makes him forget and suggests that there's more to the magic I would have liked to have known more about like what else she can do like what other spells she can use but you don't get to hear that because it just cuts out. That's the end of the episode. No, I completely agree. And that's what, and that's, and that's one of the things I loved about Harry Potter was in the beginning, they, they demonstrate with the snake, him removing the glass and they articulate, there are certain things that he did that he maybe wasn't conscious of before he knew he was a wizard based on anger or his emotions that it would change certain things. And so he could relate, Oh yeah. You know, when I was angry, this happened, or when I was sad, this happened. And you don't get that here. You don't get that validation here. So we, yeah, we have no idea what the magic encompasses. And yeah, it does leave us with the feeling that you're supposed to take care of badge in a box and that's it. And to that extent, the grandma gives that the very nature of her existence is to protect Badge. And so she gives the box to the granddaughter without any explanation whatsoever, without any idea what that is and says, here you go. I mean, it's completely, again, we talk about malfeasance again, complete malfeasance here. You would think that there'd be more of an apprenticeship period, wouldn't you? I mean, where you'd learn how to, you know, wield this, this power that you have and, to hone your skills. I mean, I, I guess we could assume that she continues to teach her, but she handed over everything. So she has the full power now. Very strange. And this story, we can sort of talk about the Midnight Society members briefly. This was told by Gary. And Gary is supposed to be the head honcho here of the Midnight Society. He's he's the old uh, the old man of the group, the leader of the group. And, you know, Gary, I think you've got to pull it together. There's a lot of loose threads in this story. I, I would just expect something a little tighter from the guy who's supposed to be the you know, the senior member of the group. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the maternal characters here lacking the grandmother, not explaining anything. And then the mother, I'm sorry. I I gotta, I gotta say this. Gwen wants to go to a party when she comes back, when the mom comes back from going out, the mom says, of course you can go. I'm not an ogre. Are you kidding me? At 16, you're letting her go to this undisclosed party without reservation because you're not an ogre? Well, I'm sorry. I guess I'm an ogre. My wife's an ogre. I think any reasonable parent would be an ogre. You're 16 years old. You don't get to go to a random party. I was I was mind-boggled by that. 
Yeah, come on. What's the worst that could happen? No, I mean, that's definitely a really weird line. I, I, I did I did kind of jump on the word ogre a little bit there because I was thinking, well, is that a reference to like the goblin later, or, you know, or the magical nature of the story? Could be. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's it's a very, um, this, well, the whole thing's bizarre. First, that they don't let her go to the party on her birthday. And then, but then they will once she gets home. Um, What's also very strange is if it's the grandmother going to the granddaughter, where does the mom play into that, right? Yeah. Does it skip <laughs> like, a generation? I mean, yeah. I mean, shouldn't she then be the next in line to reveal badge to her Okay, here's a thought. Here's a thought. Maybe. I don't know if this is true. I'd have to go back and look. It is... Do we know that the mom is the daughter or is the father the son? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that offhand. So that would be the only thing that I could say that could maybe explain it. But I don't know if that's which is the way it is. So maybe our listeners, if you if you can figure out is the grandmother and then Gwen's mother, are they related or are they in-laws? Because then that would solve the mystery. And if it's blood related or marriage related or, you know, what's the connection there? Right. Because she's technically still the woman of the family. Right. So even if she's not blood related, she's still there. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It might be a blood thing. All right, so IMDb gave this a 7.5. I ended up giving it a 7.8. Again, this is blind. I feel that's pretty I feel that's pretty close, right? I actually rated it higher than the IMDb, which I'm pretty surprised by because I really disliked the the nonsense that really was the main crux of the story. I think I was really taken aback by the, you know, the Harry Potter connection I could make. The I, I did love the atmosphere behind Badge's garden or his jungle or however you want to see it. I thought that was really well done. And I did like the connection at the end. To her having a special talent, even though she was some meaningless character, it's kind of kind of harkened back to our Shining Force episode, where I I do like the zero to hero, just like that concept of somebody could be a nothing and become somebody. Because I feel like that's you know if you're if you feel like you're a nobody, there's still that hope, obviously or expectation even that you can be a somebody. And I did like that concept and her saving her brother at the end, her having that redemption arc. I did like it. But again, the ignorance of having any idea what was going on until the very end, I did not appreciate. It was not a twist. I was completely aloof as to what was going on. So I couldn't really make a lot of connections outside of, Hey, this is cool. Or this monster looks cool. And badge does look cool. But beyond that, I really couldn't connect with it, but I did see the zero to hero story and the elements in between and to me that's worthy of a c plus what did you think okay so this is uh, a little bit crazy because i also rated it at a 7.8 i rated the exact same rating that you did i looked at the imdb first it was 7.5 i thought it was a little bit higher than that i feel like for me that like the the sort of thematic elements of the episode the magic the witchcraft badges garden all these things that weren't really the characters but more of like the the trappings the themes the situations of it the the atmosphere of it i liked it a lot and if it had had some better storytelling it could have been a really top tier episode so um 7.8 yeah it's like a you know c plus next up is the tale of the captured souls some indian tribes hated to have their pictures taken because they thought the camera captured your soul so for this one we have kiki as the storyteller and this story revolves around a family it's going on vacation 
It's a pretty simple setup. Uh, we have the daughter character and then her parents, and they are simply on their way to stay at a vacation home. And when they arrive, they are met by this caretaker, you know, owner of, well, he's he's quite young. I mean, he looks like he's a like a teenage boy, but he claims that he's there all alone and that he'll be taking care of them for their stay. Uh, his name is Peter. Uh, the girl, the girl's name is, is Danny. Uh, well, it's Danielle, which she does not like to be called. And as her family stays at this place, she notices, Danny notices, that her parents are starting to to age. They're starting to get old. They're getting lethargic. They're getting slow. And it leads us into this whole mystery of what is happening with them. Clearly, the very creepy-looking Peter has something to do with it. Uh, so what are your initial impressions Yeah, so in the beginning of this episode, they kind of tie it in with a camera. And that seemed to be the gimmick of, does a camera steal your soul? And they bring in the, you know, ancient belief about it, yada, yada. But I I honestly didn't like the tie-in with that because, in essence, in this episode, the camera photo is taken of the young boy and showed his true form as an old man because he had been stealing the life. And I don't really like that because a camera kind of does the opposite of that, right? It shows your superficial self without going deeper. So it shows whatever you want to show the camera, and it doesn't show what's deeper. And what I think the episode should have been really was a magical camera. I think it'd be cool to show what's behind the person, what's underneath the person. And I think that kind of would have been sweet. And I, I, when I saw the camera, I kind of thought they were going with that to show how superficial a camera is, that you can take a picture of something and it doesn't really mean what it's showing. But the, again, they did the opposite of that. And then they they focused on the, the power stealing with the mirrors which i I felt was kind of out of place and the mirrors don't even offer a deeper theme like vanity or anything like that the characters are all awesome they're not superficial and and focused on their, their their physical appearance or anything like that so i to me this episode seemed like it took a lot of interesting concepts and kind of threw it all together but without a real central theme or purpose Strangely, I didn't notice anything about that disconnect that you mentioned at all, but it's true now that you say it. But I I think was mainly focused on the performances here. This is some really good acting in this episode. I think out of it might be one of the best as far as the acting goes. You know, Dan Danny's pretty solid. I think Peter's very good and I like Danny's father a lot. He was great. That actor he just killed it. He's just so cool. He's like, he's an effortlessly just cool dad. And I thought he was really good. He was funny. Some really good moments. Like whenever they go in to see their rooms, they go into the room and there's mirrors everywhere. And there's a mirror above the bed. And the dad looks up at the mirror and he says something like, I think I'm going to like this room. Or like he, he indicates that he's like, he's in favor of this this mirror above the bed, which I think was, was pretty hilarious. So overall, um, I mean that the performances kind of carried it away for me. I like the idea of somebody stealing the lives of others to like make themselves younger and, and to to survive in a way. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, because you have this character who in his case, it's an actual portrait that reflects his, the true state of himself. And I think they were maybe going for something along those lines with this one, but they did mix it in with some odd and I thought it was a great set but some very odd like like old school 
technology that they brought into it. Because when Peter goes into his room, he can press a button and a bunch of the things like the bed and other objects disappear into the walls. And then all of these different mechanisms, this uh, chamber that he goes inside of to sort of, I guess keep himself fresh but also to sort of drain in the life force uh into himself comes down and there's these knobs and buttons everywhere and it has this look of like a mad scientist's lair which i thought was really cool maybe reminded me a little bit of like a dr frankenstein type of situation and so i guess even if the thematics didn't all fit up with the idea of the camera there was just a lot of cool stuff thrown into into here that distracted me from that what were your thoughts about um the acting do you agree that it would like the acting was was pretty top-notch yeah the acting was great i i Love the dad, obviously. You know, he tries incorporating Peter into the games, even though, and they do a good job with that to make Peter seem like some nerd who doesn't really know how to play. And the dad's like, come on, he can throw a ball around. And yeah, he's just a good father. He's supposed to have a good time. He's like, let's have a good time. Let's relax. Let's chill. You can tell he's a hard worker. He probably saved up for this vacation for a long time. Even in the beginning, I mean, there are a lot of red flags here of Peter. I mean, he's a creepy guy. Loving y'all. I didn't mean to startle you. And he says things like, I'm glad you're the only people here. What? There would be other people in this common area, etc." And then I was like, yeah, you know, let's, you know, he's a little weird, but yeah, let's make the most of it. Let's have fun. That's how I am as a dad where I'm like, hey, you know, let's just make the most of a situation. Let's have fun because, you know, he put a ton of money into this. He's been working hard for this. He just wants everyone to have a good time. And of course, he picks a place with some creepy guy, some strange person. He's like, you know, let's make the most of it. Let's let's throw the ball with him. Let's try to incorporate him and have fun. Let's not be weird about it. Let's ignore the obvious red flags here and try to have a good time. So let me ask you this then, because because this could easily happen to you, right? So let's say that you go on vacation. You know, you've saved up. You pick this place. Of course, you happen to pick the one place where you can get your soul stolen. And you're there. You know, when you pull up, your daughter's like, oh, this looks boring. We should have gone to the ocean, which, of course, is what Danny says whenever they arrive. And you see this creepy guy is showing you around. You're the only people there. What are you going to do? Do you do you leave? Do you stay? What happens? No, I, that's that's how I was able to connect with them. You stay, man. I mean, you plan this out. You plan this out and you want it to be good and everyone's going to have their negative X, Y, and Z about it. And you want it to be the biggest vibe possible. You want this to be everyone having fun. So it's got to be good. It's got to be perfect because if not, then the vacation was a failure and all your money and your time and your time off wasn't worth it. So you got to make the most of it. And that's what he was doing the whole time. I mean, he, he was, he was unflailing the entire time, even when his back was thrown out. He's like, hey, you know, it's fine. I'm just tired. You know, I'm just tired. We're not going to worry about it. That's how I am. I mean, for me to acknowledge a problem really at all in my family, it would take a major hitting the house for me to acknowledge that there's something wrong. Otherwise, I'm always trying to keep it even keel. That's fantastic. I I, I applaud your stick to itiveness. I, I just I hope that your daughter would be able to figure out the mystery before your <laughs> before your soul is, is sucked out. Uh, and so, what basically happens here is, um, you know, Danny starts to get some clues that Peter is not on the up and up. Uh, probably one of the biggest ones is when he 
ducks and covers whenever her mom comes out with a camera to take a picture. Shout out to Polaroids. Haven't seen one in a long time, but awesome. And then uh, later on, you know, Danny eventually finds this grave marker that says Peter on it and it's the date on it is 1907 but there's no end date and so by this point in time this was released in 1992 so he would have been pretty old still possible to be alive but he would have been an old man by this point and he's clearly not so this is where things really start to get sort of ramp up she also finds this kind of I guess, cemetery of all the victims that he has murdered. 21 men, 15 women, 34 kids, 10 dogs. Which is pretty dark. I mean, there's a listing of like how many men, women, children, and dogs have been killed by this guy. I just have to say, I in no way, shape, or form condone or accept any kind of portrayal of dog violence on screen ever so even seeing that i was like did you have to put that in there i didn't like that but anyway um moving on she ends up you know eventually realizing that she has to destroy uh these mirrors that he has set up everywhere and then she also uses uh mirrors and pictures and the like sorts of things to eventually force him back into his chamber that's in his room and she reverses everything you know sort of flips the switch you do see this neat little um tracker of these tubes that are filled with some sort of liquid and they show uh, from what I could tell, how much life is left in the person. Because you can see that Danny's is filled a lot more, and her parents are both down really low, because they're almost dead at this point. Now, whenever she manages to sort of uh, foil his plans and throw the switch, reverse everything, Peter is, is seen coming out of his chamber, like covering his face. And then later on, we kind of see a glimpse of him as an old man, like, you know, looking out of the doorway. It made me wonder just sort of about the mechanics of this of, you know, once this life was stolen, I guess by reversing the process, she's able to give it back to her parents. I'm not sure if it would work that way. I I, kind of feel like it's been taken, but I, I guess the idea was she transferred it back from Peter to them. And then at that point, they're able to leave without any kind of uh, problem, and her parents don't remember what happened. What did you think about the ending, about how at the end, like, Peter says, Goodbye, Danny. I'm going out back now to join my family. Go enjoy your youth. I'm going to go be with my family now. It's like He has murdered dozens of people and dogs and children they're they're buried in the backyard i mean this guy's a serial killer so i mean what do you think about about this sort of more mundane type ending i despised it and it's it's one of my biggest issues with it i mean this episode was scary i mean i get it's a kid's show so they tried out the you know they they make it light and humorous or whatever, but you're right. They had a graveyard on the grounds with dozens of people who were killed. And I, I, I'm going to correct myself here. They weren't just killed. Their souls were taken, right? Like they were taking souls from people. I, and I materialized this even one step further. You know, I was thinking about how people would be today if this was a real thing. And I know for sure there would be old people on their deathbed that would take the souls of children and people to preserve themselves. 
And so that was horrific to me. And so I, you know, I'll ask your opinion on that a little bit later, but at the end of the day, this character at the end, yeah, the last scene is him alive. He needed or a horrific death. He needed it. I wanted to see it. Something bad. Instead, he's able to be old and die a natural, graceful death. That's insane to me. And not only that, he gives advice, right? He says, Danny, don't waste your youth. I mean, that's something you'd say from a character that you you love. And he's giving you advice from the afterlife. Like, yeah, do this, blah, blah, blah. For him to be giving advice? You're right. He's a serial killer. He's evil. He stole people's souls. You don't give him this redemptive act. You show him suffering. No, you don't get reunited with your family. You don't have a, a happy afterlife. You have a terrible, terrible end. And we didn't see that. And, and she just walks away and it's like, okay, whatever. No, this guy was evil. And they didn't portray him like that. All I can think of is that it comes back to the idea of it being a kid's show. They kind of downplay the cemetery of the victims. They don't really comment on it. She sees it, but no one really says anything about it. And it's not explicitly stated what it is. It's sort of left to the viewer to kind of figure it out of what what that means. And I guess maybe a lot of kids didn't quite get the idea of what that meant. But it, it is an odd detail to include I, I feel like if they wanted to give him a redemptive arc then they just shouldn't have shown that because it, once you show that it makes it like pretty much impossible to empathize with him at that point because you can see you know what he's been responsible for I know in a kid's show like that, they're not going to be able to show a real terrible end or anything, but they could have at least just had him like turn to dust or something after he came out of the uh, chamber. He comes out and his hair is kind of white and he's covering his face and he like falls to the ground and it cuts away. Maybe Danny goes back up there and it shows powder or dust on the floor to like represent that he is drifted away. That would be my re rewrite. If I'm rewriting like I did for Dollmaker with the hand, then that's what I would have done for this one. I don't know if you can think of anything else. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, Mummy 2. Where the mummy falls back, or even maybe Hercules that we've talked about before, where he falls back and the undead are just grabbing him into the abyss. That's what I wanted to see. And you see it in these movies. I mean, you saw it in Hercules, right? I mean, you know, Mummy PG-13. I mean, Hercules, they do that. They draw Hades in to this abyss. And it's these these evil people that just want to, you know, it's obviously a terrible place. And they draw them in. You get that validation in something like Hercules. I, I, I get it's a kid's show, but it's clearly, it, it has mature themes. But this was the most vanilla possible ending. I mean, this is an ending I would see, you know, from a grandpa dying or whatever, giving his last words to his grandchild, not a serial killer. So once again, I have to go back to the Midnight Society. At the end, they decide to take a picture together and some more shade to throw at Tucker. And I just really, I love the fact that in the picture, Frank gives him bunny ears. I thought that was hilarious because it just sort of focuses on that same, that same theme of Frank, like sort of putting Tucker into his place. It's a situation where, I don't know, this is Kiki's first story that she's ever told. It's an interesting ending because it's not like a, it's not a typical out that you would see for the Midnight Society where they take this photograph together. So again, you get a little bit more of their dynamic. But yeah, overall, uh, I will say that the pimples 
that Danny starts to get throughout the show as she ages. She starts to get pimples. I think you're breaking out. That that's not a fun memory. And pimples pimples were the worst. I wanted I wanted to pop those, man. And I guess the dad the dad gets his old hair in his bad back, and I guess that guess that was her getting older was her pimples but man those were juicy you know dr pimple popper it is what it is that's what i was thinking about was man those things would would blow man i can't even comment on that (laughs) i can't i don't have the stomach for for pimple popper man that's not i can't do it you know going back to what you had mentioned about the polaroids and the bunny ears and stuff that, that is something i feel like i loved about the polaroids and that's what obviously we grew up with, where it's one picture, that's it. And each Polaroid, you had a certain amount you could take. You couldn't retake all that much because you had a very limited role. I I did appreciate that. Even today, we use Polaroids now. So we do a family Friday where we basically do a family night. We do pizza and a movie and games and whatever we want to do. And each Friday, my family takes a picture. And it's a Polaroid picture. So it's whatever we take. Whatever we take is one take. You get the You get the picture. That's it. And so it's always, I always love to see the different faces everyone makes or what we're wearing or how we're acting. And we always do silly faces and that's it. That's the picture. And so we end up making a diary about it, basically writing, Hey, this is what we did on this day. So our kids will have that when they grow up. And so that's what I was thinking about with the Polaroid. And it's so cool because it is what it is, whatever we were feeling. If they're sad, they're sad. If they're making silly faces, they're making silly faces, but it's great because that's the picture you have to go with you know there's no filters no editing no retakes that's the picture that's the beauty of a polaroid where i feel like with you know nowadays you take a picture and it's so much more than just a picture right and it kind of harkens to what i thought about in the beginning where a picture really doesn't tell you anything i would argue pictures almost do the opposite right they almost try to make a fiction of reality where they're trying to do a filter edits and cropping and retakes and posturing and poses and everything to make it seem like, Hey, I have the best life. I have the best face. I have the best body, whatever it is. I I don't feel it. A picture nowadays connects with reality at all. And I did want that episode to be that because I think maybe that'll be a good black mirror episode. And that's what I wanted this episode to be. But obviously they went with the mirror. Now it's time for the scores. IMDB rates it as an 8.4. This was tricky because as as we explained, you know, there are a number of issues with maybe the the theme of the picture and the mirrors and and then of course the kind of excusing of Peter's actions that we kind of see at the end, or at least downplaying of it anyway. That being said, I, I went more with my gut with this one, which is despite the problems, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was really well done. With the acting, that was the big part of it. Not going to lie, the dad really had a lot to do with this. But I thought that it was a fun story. I thought it was it was had a lot of good like set design, especially with Peter's room. And I just enjoyed it. So I did knock it down 0.1 from the IMDB rating. I went with an 8.3. And the 0.1 deduction comes from the 10 dogs in the graveyard. I did not approve of that. And so, you know, that's just, so I, I dinged it, let's say a 10th of a point to represent the 10 dogs in the graveyard. So aside from that, though, I'm going to stick more or less around that IMDb rating. So 8.3. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the dogs because 
Peter steals the life from the dad, right? And it's not just inherent youth. It's also ability too, because he goes from not being able to throw a baseball to being able to magically throw a baseball. Even though he's still young when they see him, because he stole the strength from the dad, he now has the ability to throw a baseball. So I wonder what, in taking the dog's souls, I wonder what attributes he gained from the dog as part of his personality. So that's an interesting thought process there. Well, if I can interject there, I would say that certainly a sense of smell would be the main one. So I wonder if that's how he managed to... uh you know, maybe sense, uh, sort of sense where his victims were at. But then again, no, because he had cameras everywhere. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe dogs are too wholesome and it didn't transfer. I don't know. Good question, though. Going on to the rating. Yeah, again, we're not that dissimilar. It's crazy. I did this blind again, but I gave it an 8.1 and very similar. I, I, I agree with the acting. I agree with the cool premise of stealing power from people. I just, again, I, I did not like the camera being removed basically from the scenario into the mirrors without the mirrors having a connection. And that was really my biggest issue with it. But obviously it's really cool and scary that somebody would be old and, and bring hapless victims in and, and steal their souls. And you have the graveyard, very spooky in a lot of different ways. I I agree with the acting, but I just felt the disconnect between the camera, what I wanted it to be versus the mirrors without it having any real thematic element to be a, a pretty big downer. But again, 8.1, more reasonable than I thought it would be, to be honest with you. The Tale of the Full Moon tells us a story about a noisy boy who happens to catch a glimpse of his neighbor's secret, that he is a werewolf when the full moon strikes. The rest of the episode is about him trying to prove to his mom that he is telling the truth, only to discover that his mom is now dating him. After a twist, we're left with an interesting discussion on what is normal and abnormal. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting one. Uh, Tell the Full Moon. I remember this one vaguely as a kid, but I didn't remember a ton of the details. The, the one thing that stuck with me was when the main character, whose name is Jed, sneaks into the suspected werewolf's house. Because again, we have breaking and entering, just like in the doll maker. But anyway, Jed, I remember him going in there because of how he finds the meat in the fridge. And it's just like really disgusting looking. And is I guess that just sort of stuck with me a little bit. And just the fact of him being in the house. Like it makes me so nervous when somebody's in the house, when the other people are there. There's another episode, which we haven't covered yet, which is really good, called The Tale of the Nightly Neighbors where they're suspected that there are vampires living next door, and there's kind of a similar scene where they sneak in, and you're like, oh man, are they going to get like caught while they're in there? And so that always creates a lot of tension. With this one, aside from that exact moment, I had some mixed feelings on this one. I'm just going to get it out of the way right at the beginning. I don't condone dog violence or pet violence in general. And, you know, they go looking for the cat. And, of course, we find out that, you know, essentially this kid and his friend are running a pet detective agency where they go searching for missing pets. And they find this giant pile of, like, dog and cat collars outside of the guy's house. And clearly he's been killing and eating the pets. So um, that kind of ruined it for me right from the beginning because you can tell that that in fact is going on and they confirm it at the end of the episode where the kid says something along the lines of you know no more no more eating eating pets so some people might feel like 
you know, why do I keep harping on this? But I just, I don't like it. So for me personally, it's going to lose points for that. Anyway, uh, the rest of the episode, it's kind of interesting, but it has a strange sort of vibe to it. The, the twist is is pretty wild with the mom actually dating the werewolf. You know, sort of just the kid is very unhinged throughout this episode, like how he stabs the boyfriend in the hand when they're at the dinner because of it be, him having a silver fork and thinking that it'll it will expose this guy as being a werewolf. Of course, it turns out that it's actually his twin brother. I guess they were twins, or at least his brother. They don't look the same anymore because he's a werewolf. But anyway, it was a lot of manic energy to this. It was very, very weird. I I don't know. I I have mixed feelings. Well, I I, I have a lot to say, and I kind of want to break down what you said. So you brought up the, the silverware, right? The fork. And it made me think of Quicksilver, right? Because in Quicksilver, the spoon was used, but the spoon was steel. And so you think silverware means it must be made of silver, correct? So spoon, knife, fork, silverware must be made of silver. And yet the spoon was made of steel. And yet here he was so confident, right? He was so confident that this was made of silver because I, I guess it's silverware, right? But it could have been made of steel. So maybe his his initial presumption was wrong. I feel like it's likely that he's just kind of a dumb kid and he doesn't know that most people's silverware isn't actually silver. I mean, it's possible that his mom had some kind of expensive, like, hand-me-down set of silver that is actually real silver. I find that unlikely, especially because... You know, she's at this point in time, she's clearly a single mom that can't afford um, even getting a dog because that's one of the um, main points at the beginning of the story is that this kid, Jed, and this is something that I did empathize with, is that Jed, he wants a dog. That's why he's doing the pet detective agency. He's trying to raise money to go to the pound to get a dog out. I'm a boy and a boy's supposed to have a dog. And he even has a picture of the dog that you know that he shows and it's um i it's very relatable to me i i went through a period when i was a kid where i really wanted a dog and my parents just wouldn't get one they there weren't dog people they wouldn't have any pets really no matter really what i said they just were dead set against it and so uh, and i always particularly wanted a dachshund a wiener dog because i knew someone that had one and i just thought they were awesome because they're really funny and cute and small and they're just cool dogs they're very very loyal and i really wanted one so i, I you know and now of course as an adult I, I i was able to do that but at the time as a kid totally relate to this kid in that regard i do not agree with the ending where it's like oh now he has his dog because he has a werewolf friend first of all you know not to be too like nitpicky here dogs and wolves are not the same okay so i mean yes many 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 millennia ago dogs evolved from wolves as they were domesticated by humans you know dogs are the the first domesticated animal that go back millions of years before anything else any other later animals that were domesticated and so that happened a really long time ago they respond to humans differently. I, I know this is a story about a werewolf, so I probably shouldn't be looking at it so scientifically. But I thought that was kind of a weird uh, 
reward. It's meant to be funny, a little bit surprising, a little bit of a Twilight Zone type of thing, I believe. But I don't know if for me it was very fulfilling. Well, it was kind of a, it was kind of a tie in to the family as well, because yes, while it's a wolf's not technically a dog, it's still in a way a pet, right? And I think that's what they were going at. Whereas typically, a family doesn't have a werewolf as a, I guess it would be his stepbrother, right? They're trying to suggest that this is maybe abnormal, but normal. And so while the wolf is not a dog, it still is in a way a pet, right? And though he does eat different pets, how different is that from a cat or a dog eating wet meat in a can, you know, that comes from a different animal? Do you see a difference in that? No, I, I see what they were going for. Um, but I just, I guess I don't buy the ending so much, like the idea that there's this there's this family with like the werewolf pet. I mean, it just isn't like, I I don't think if I was a kid and I wanted a dog and then I got this bizarre, like stepfather with a werewolf stepbrother or werewolf brother. I don't know. It's just sort of, I think it stretches belief a little much (laughs) for me. Um, You know, they were going for a more bizarre off the wall type ending here it just didn't connect with me very well i mean did it work do you did you feel like it worked it's i mean it's interesting because we both didn't connect with the ending but we connect disconnected for different reasons so you saw him as a werewolf right i saw it as since you're a pet owner i saw it as being a father and so when i looked at him i felt it was lukewarm because it's like i saw from the family perspective not him as an animal but he's only an animal when the full moon hits Otherwise, he's a normal guy, right? And so how I saw it was him as basically a predator. It's like having an... I get family's family, but it's like having an uncle who's a a sexual predator of some sort. We know this werewolf attacks children. He wants to eat children. We know that, right? And so I get family's family, but you should not allow that into your family if you know that your brother is a sexual predator or a predator, uh, an abusive predator of some sort. And we know that based on this werewolf. So it's like, I get having divergent families and whatnot, but here, this guy is evil, right? I mean, he's a werewolf who's going to who's gonna try to eat <laughs> your stepson, right? In the middle of the night. And you know that. And so, yeah, you maybe like chain him up or whatever, but at the end of the day, you're allowing this evil predator into your home. And that's what I connected with where I was like, I would never do that. I mean, that's terrible. That's not, that's not a happy ending to me. No, I, I didn't. I didn't view it as a happy ending at all. Uh, I, I guess I, I was looking at the werewolf as well. I was looking at him more as like a murderer of of pets, and so for me, I was like, nope, nope, nope. You can't rehabilitate that guy, and so it just, yeah, I don't know. There, there's sort of the suggestion at the end, like, oh, he's gonna behave from now on, like just because the kid told him to. That's not going to happen. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe we're being too um, realistic about it, but I guess that, you know, it's just sort of a, an ending that, that I didn't find very satisfying. I will say the one thing I agreed with the werewolf on is his steak rare. I mean, the fact that two people have well done steaks in that family, and we don't know who, one with it being um, medium well, and the last one being rare, that's crazy to me. I mean, I love medium or steak. I think that has the most flavor. And I'll, I'll sometimes order it rare 
right? Because people overcook. So it usually is medium rare, but well done steak. I mean, my dad eats the well done steak and I think that's just out of tradition. But to me, the more you cook it, the less meat you have, the more char you get. I, again, I, this is probably a tangent. <laughs> how do you, how do you eat your steak? I mean, is this, am I crazy here? Well, uh, so I don't eat my steak because I'm a vegetarian, but I used to. And before I became a vegetarian, uh, I actually would do, um, I oscillated between medium well and medium rare. Uh, I went through a phase where I started going more toward the rare, actually. So I can't completely back you up on that. Never went full rare. I think that's pushing it. But I I lived in that middle zone. Um, If it was either medium, either way, I was good. Now, I will say that if I had to choose between well done and rare, I would choose well done. So there is that. But uh, another tangent is that the mother at one point refers to the Kelvinator. I don't know if you noticed this. She says something about there being like something in the Kelvinator. And I never heard this before. I looked it up. It turns out it's a brand of refrigerator. I just thought that that was odd that she referred to it by brand. I don't know if that's like an old thing people used to say or if I just misunderstood something. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with that brand. About the mother, though. And I do have a question about this to you. She, she says in, in the middle of the episode, randomly, she calls the dad, Jed's dad, a creep. And then she puts the photo down of the dad. What is going on here? What did he do? And whatever he did, why have the picture in the first place if he's that much of a creep? I needed to know this. And they never addressed it. They never looked at it. What did he do? No, man. <laughs> I, I actually wrote down that exact same thing. Here's what it says in my notes. It says, so he's, he's asking his mom for the dog and she's explaining how they can't have one. And then the kid says under his breath something like, Dad would believe me. And then she's like, yeah, he probably would have. And then she flips over the picture and calls him a creep. And I wrote down, what is this family dynamic with a couple of exclamations and question marks? And that was never answered later on. It almost makes me wonder if it was the dad or the mom that was the creep, because the mom is the one that ends up getting together with this werewolf situation. But I, I don't know. I It suggests that he must have... I mean, did he cheat on her? Did he abandon them? We don't know. Nobody's, nobody tells us. Well, we do see the mom with curlers in her hair waking up from sleep with this mask, this like teal mask on her face. What I noticed about his, his mom's look is that that was like the stereotypical, you know, older like mom type look like that happened a lot in shows. I feel like when we were kids where you got the curlers and the mask and the robe, it's sort of like this whole look. It kind of put me in mind of like Peggy Bundy from Married with Children. Like, I don't know. It sort of had vibes like that to me. But yeah, that was funny. So one other thing I had to point out that this kid does wrong. We already mentioned the silver uh, situation with the silverware. So whenever he's at the dinner, he makes a comment to the mom's boyfriend and he says, where was that Transylvania? And I was just thinking, you can't even get the monster right. Werewolves are not from Transylvania. Vampires are from Transylvania. This kid doesn't know what he is doing, and he's supposed to be a pet detective. I think we need to bring Ace Ventura in here. All righty then. 
because clearly this kid doesn't know how to detect. Well, one of the ways that you can look at a person is by their sidekick, right? Their co-host. And so I got to bring this back to Huey, man. I got to bring this back to Huey. And I actually like this character. I mean, he's kind of funny. Um, he has, he has a joke where, you know, he, you know, Jed wants the dog and he's like, I hope my mom will buy me a dog because I'm tired of playing fetch with you. <laughs> and then Huey <laughs> deadpans, deadpan says, me too. Splinters hurt my tongue. He is dead serious in saying that you could tell he was thinking about playing fetch, eating the stick. Oh. And, and then, uh, Jed asks him, you know, what do you do if you got a werewolf next door? And Huey says, move. <laughs> Those two things made me laugh. And I got to say, man, I got to say, let's talk about the scene where Huey does a barrel roll over a huge picketed fence. I mean, we're talking like at least five feet with sharp edges. I mean, in order to find this cat, he sees this this character with their head sticking out with their, their hair. And he, he jumps over this fence. There's a barrel roll to catch this wig. And it's funny, but how does he do that? I mean, I have not seen something this funny, honestly, <laughs> since Cabin Fever Pancakes, that scene. Pancakes! No pancakes! I mean, this was money to me. I was laughing. Obviously, this had to be intentional, where they never assumed he could just hurdle this at least five-foot fence. <laughs> well, first of all, um, you know, do a barrel roll. Do a barrel roll! Star Fox reference, but yeah, I think that basically uh, Huey, I wrote down a couple things about him, the barrel roll over the fence. Apparently this kid has superhuman abilities. Maybe he's a werewolf too, actually. Not only that, but he has this incredibly deadpan voice. Like you mentioned with some of these jokes that he delivers, or are they jokes? Or is he just delivering them as such? But um, Huey is the worst sidekick He's just so uh, ineffective and he does that awesome barrel roll, but he doesn't do anything else any other time throughout the episode. He doesn't do anything to help Jed. Uh, He kind of just sort of falls off as the episode continues and you don't really see much of him. I mean, he's with Jed when he's trying to break into the house uh, toward the end and that when they see the werewolf, Huey is there and he basically just pieces out um, as soon as he has the opportunity. I don't really know what Huey's purpose was, but I'm glad he was there. He added a lot of comedic value to the episode. Yeah, that was his, that was his, his value. I mean, he's, he was clearly just comedic. He's funny. I enjoyed him, but obviously he doesn't add any substance really to the, to the episode whatsoever. (laughs) So, you know, it's interesting because I thought you would really, feel empathy with the main character on the pursuit of the dog. And that's, that's the boy's dream. And yet obviously with the the violence towards animals, I can see why you would be against it. So I'm interested to hear what your rating would be on this. Right. Well, yeah, I, I had a lot of sympathy for his initial um, pursuit. Like I said, the idea of getting the dog w- was very relatable. Um, but then, you know, I guess at the end, he has no choice but to make the best of the situation because his mom is going to do what she's going to do anyway. So if he doesn't have a dog, then he has this werewolf. I don't know. Still very strange. Uh, I... So the IMDb rating was an 8.0. One thing that I'll point out is that this is a Frank story. And Frank normally is one of my favorite storytellers right up there with Betty Ann because he tells the Dr. Vink stories. But this is a non-Vink story. 
and I think it shows. I feel like maybe Frank, I'd have to hear some of his other non-Vink stories again, but I wonder if his non-Vink uh, tales are just maybe not up to par with the, with the Dr. Vink ones. So I knocked it down from the IMDb average. Uh, we had this 8.0 rating. I wasn't sure what to do with it exactly because it, it has some fun comedy. It's pretty zany. It's a little bit over the top. Um, but then it has some of these elements that I didn't like. I ended up going with a 7.7, kind of like a C plus mid mid range towards C plus range, because I think there's a lot of entertainment value in this. I just don't love the way that it comes together. But now I'm curious what you thought about it. Well, it's funny you bring up Frank because obviously our first Are You Afraid of the Dark episode included Phantom Cab, which they mention this is the one year anniversary of it right in this episode. So I thought that was crazy. I was like, what are the odds that we pick that out? Yeah, I, I see, I found this enjoyable. And I think I might have may, might be a little bit biased because I had just recently seen Disturbia, which is a movie similar to Rear Window that I think has similar elements to it. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but in Disturbia, you know, Shia LaBeouf's the main character and he's under house arrest and he sees from house arrest his neighbor engaging in what he believes to be murder from his house. And so no one believes him. And then his mom, the one of the twists is that he's, he starts to date the neighbor. And it's great because it plays off the kid hating the new man in the relationship. And there's also the tension of knowing the evil underneath. And yeah, you've, you've seen, yeah, this is a movie crew movie. So you've seen this, which is like in this episode, he's proven right. And although we know Judd is only half right since the guy is his twin brother, I felt there was a good story with that plot cohesion, which I think is a little bit biased because a lot of these episodes I felt that when we reviewed did not have that plot cohesion. I liked it and I really enjoyed that tension that existed. And that's why I, I rated it an 8.9, which is astronomically higher than you. But again, I did not connect with the eating of the animals the way that you did. And I really enjoyed the, I actually enjoyed Judd's performance. I enjoyed Huey's performance. I love the plot cohesion behind it. My main disagreement really was the ending where I didn't like the idea of a predator still existing in the home. But other than that, I mean, it kind of followed Disturbia, which I really enjoyed. So to me, that's that's why I rated it as, as high as it did. And again, I did not look at the IMDb rating prior to my review. So I'm curious to see if if you're shocked by this. Obviously, we're very different on this as opposed to the other ones. Yeah, I'm actually pretty surprised. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could see it that way. I mean, I see the Disturbia connections now that you mentioned that. It does have a good bit of action in it, lots of tension. Jed's performance was pretty, he did what he did well. He he did his, his choices he made well. I thought he committed fully, let's put it that way. I think he comes across as a little bit crazy, but I guess if you really believe that this guy was a werewolf, you might do some crazy things. So, I mean, yeah, I could see it, but this is by far our biggest divergence so far. So I find that very interesting. And finally, we have the tale of the hungry hounds, which is told by Kristen. In this story, we have a girl named Pam and her cousin, Amy. They spend some time up in Pam's attic rummaging around. They find an old chest up there, but they decide that they can't open it. There's a combination lock and they're not really sure if they ought to open it anyway. No. We shouldn't touch it. Mom says let the dead rest in peace. Pam, meanwhile, has been trying to convince her mother to let her ride horses. It's what she wants the most, pretty much out of life, and she deeply wants to ride horses, but her mom is totally set against it, and 
Pam can't quite understand why this is. Now, later on, Pam and Amy decide to play around with a Ouija board. L E T because that always ends well, doesn't it? And as they're playing around with this board, it spells out the words, let me out, and it gives a combination, a number 149. Eventually, they will go up to the attic and open up the chest where they find a red riding jacket that you may be wearing if you were riding a horse. And this is where things start to get a little bit wild. Before I go any further, let me ask you for what your initial thoughts are. Yeah, this episode... (laughs) It was a little bit out of sorts for me, and it seemed like a lot of cool elements that just really didn't come together. I felt like the, you know, why didn't you feed the hounds line was so iconic. Why didn't you feed the hounds? And I just wanted the episode to be about that. I think that could have been an amazing theme, but it didn't hit home for me because, I mean, I guess the hounds, they were supposed to be fed the fox, but later they were showed the kibble, so I didn't understand that, and obviously... Uh, she couldn't feed him the kibble because she ended up chasing the fox with, that she let loose on a horse and then fell off a cliff. And then the old man comes and says, hey, the hounds were hungry, but it wasn't because they ate him. It's because he had a heart attack from fear of them. Then, uh, you know, obviously Dora dies uh, from a horse accident because she wanted to save the fox from a hunting party. And this relationship with the fox was a little bit odd. I mean, they, they spend like two sentences saying how important this fox is to her. And so that's why she let her loose. But then that causes this this whole chain of events and it's just a few lines. So it didn't seem very authentic to me. And her not feeding the hounds, I mean, I guess if she let the fox go and the, the hounds were supposed to eat the fox, that was bad. And then obviously she chased the fox, so she died. So she couldn't feed them the kibble. But then her excuse for not feeding the hounds was that she was dead. So that seems like a reasonable excuse. So I loved the scene of the old man approaching her and saying the line, but it didn't hit home for me because I didn't really see her issue with that. So I don't know if you could elucidate that a little bit for me, try to explain that a little bit to me, what, why he was so angry with her and try to connect everything because I just didn't get that from my viewing of it. From my understanding, so first of all, I should say that whenever they open up the chest and Pam puts on this jacket. It's that jacket. Take off the jacket. She essentially becomes possessed by her aunt, uh, her aunt Dora. You know, she starts walking and she goes into this uh, sort of fantasy world past of what happened to her aunt. She's reliving the events of that night and Amy is going after her trying to get her attention, but Pam just simply doesn't respond because she's basically become her aunt at this point. That's where they run into the old man and all these events start to happen. It's like a retelling almost. They're reliving the events of of that situation that happened. Now, as far as the hounds, I'm I'm not so sure that the fox was necessarily meant to be their food food source. I think what this was, was something else that, again, that I don't approve of that used to be relatively common, I guess. I don't know if it was common, but used to happen was fox hunting where people would, uh, I think this is especially popular in England, they would, uh, you know, release a fox and then people would use their hounds to try to hunt it down, essentially. And so I wasn't sure if if the fox was being kept for possibly a fox hunt or what exactly the fox, what his relationship was to everything. If that's the case, then the kibble 
might just simply have been their food. And because she released this fox and chased after him and, and fell, then nobody ever went to feed the hounds, never gave them their kibble. And I guess that's where this this old man, the stable hand, uh, the stable keeper named Giles, was somehow so terrified by the dogs that he had a heart attack, which still didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. One thing that I definitely have to point out is that the dogs in this uh, episode are adorable. Like, I was like, man, like, these dogs are so cute. Like, at the end, whenever the dogs are released and they're supposedly going to eat Amy as she's climbing up to try to get away from them. They're just all these, like, cute dogs. They're, they're, they're good boys. I don't, I don't really feel any fear from them like they're not really um they're not scary at all i i liked them i was glad to see them but they certainly didn't do what the episode was going for i don't know if they were going for kind of a like a hound of the baskervilles kind of thing or, or what exactly they were they were going for but yeah it feels like a lot of parts that don't fully come together what what did you think about the hounds themselves were, were they scary no they weren't and that's the problem to me I they didn't eat him, and I, I assume it's because it's a children's show. You don't want him to be eaten alive. But there was a huge disconnect. I was like, yeah, they were jumping up. I mean, that's no different from from a dog jumping up to play with you or something. So I didn't I didn't understand how I, I want to give credit to the actor because he really demonstrated that he had a heart attack, right? But the scenario that led him to a heart attack, I could not understand. And so there's no fear of it. These hounds were not these terrible, ferocious creatures who were ravenous. I mean, we were told they were hungry. They were starved, near starvation. But how they were portrayed was not in any way, shape, or form. It, it did not lend itself to him dying of a heart attack out of fear. I mean, it, it just, that's why it didn't resonate with me because I would understand if they made it. So, oh yeah, the dogs ate him because they were hungry. And if her failure to feed him was a result of an actual issue that she had, as opposed to her having an accident while riding a horse, none of that was here though. I mean, she didn't purposefully <laughs> do something. I mean, she was just trying to save this fox and she had an accident. So I, it didn't connect because it wasn't an intentional act from her that led to the hounds not eating. And then the hounds themselves didn't do anything based off of that. They didn't eat him. They weren't so ravenous they ate him. He just, for all I know, they ate and he still died of a heart attack anyway, right? I mean, it's like, there's no, there's no proximate cause here. No, there's not. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is that there's not really anything scary in this episode. Nothing that happened was really anybody's fault. It was kind of just a series of mishaps that seemed to happen, like a lot of unfortunate events. If if you're supposed to be afraid of the hounds, that doesn't make any sense. Not only because they look cute, but also because, let's just say, okay, they're meant to be scary. But like you said, they didn't do anything wrong. Like they were, like they just, nobody fed them. Another thing that I thought was interesting about the scene with the dogs and with Amy was how it seemed like they tried to use slow-mo to make it a little bit more dramatic. And I don't think that quite pulled it off. If anything, it let you see how non-threatening the dogs were a little bit more. But one quick shout out, the guy that played Giles, the old man, also played Old Man Corcoran in another episode, which is actually very good, I, I would say, uh, which we haven't covered yet. But we will hopefully see more of him in the future. Now you mentioned Amy. And I want to talk about her because, man, I mean, I, 
I can't tell you how much I dislike this character. I, she is she is so bland for what's happening. I mean, imagine that you do a Ouija board that gives you a combination. She goes, she has no problem opening the chest. She's encouraging, hey, open the chest, no big deal. I would be freaking out. I mean, I'd be freaking out about the combination given from a Ouija board. And then it opens. The chest opens based on the combination from a Ouija board. And she's still the same. She she acts the exact same. Then she goes into this mystical world. She's still the same. Doesn't change. She's the exact same character. And then even to the point in the barn where she's trying to like, oh, it's the jacket's fault. We got to remove the jacket. She pulls the jacket off with the buttons on there. She doesn't try to undo the buttons on the jacket. She pulls the, she's like, oh, the jacket must be stuck on. Doesn't even try to undo the buttons. The worst character you could possibly have here. I can't even, ugh, I can't even. <laughs> I can't defend Amy. I, I I don't really know. I mean, it shows us at the beginning that she is this sort of uh, city girl cousin coming out into the country and she's a little bit uh, out of her element. I can't believe that I have to spend my entire summer here. And you would think that all these mystical things that start happening would kind of shock her out of that and make her react in a more organic way. But but that's not what happens. So ultimately, you know, they get back uh, after they, she gets the jacket off and everything. And they um, they end up back where they started back in the attic. And at this point, there's this odd little exchange where it's it's a sort of an attempt at a bit of a twist ending where Pam mentions that she has to go feed her dog. And she says dogs instead of dog. Come on, I gotta go feed the dogs. What dogs? You only have one. That's what I said. And so then I'm wondering, well, is this meant to be like a cliffhanger? Is there meant to be some residual sort of magic involved? Or is it just... She's still coming out of this sort of trance that she was in as she was more or less controlled by her aunt, who, by the way, throughout all of their situation they went through, she ends up being put to rest, her spirit or you know, is is put to rest, and then Pam is able to finally take up riding at the end. But it's just sort of a, an odd little exchange, and I'm not sure what they were going for with that. Was it meant to be like a little cliffhanger? What did you think about that? Yeah, I, I just saw that as, you know, bloodline. It's why she was interested in horses without ever really being able to ride them. I just think they're connected. And now that she's experienced her in some way, I think maybe that connection is stronger. I don't, I don't think it's a scenario where she's completely unaffected by what happened. I think maybe that connection would be stronger, if anything. One other thing I need to shout out is Kristen's dog. Uh, she brings uh, her dog with her at the Midnight Society meeting at the beginning. And her dog's name is Elvis which I think is pretty funny because she even makes the joke about him being nothing but a, nothing but a hound dog. And that, of course, fits into the title of The Hungry Hounds. Also, Elvis, the name of Clarissa's lizard, and Clarissa explains it all, but I guess that's not super related to, to this story. Um, so overall, I mean, you know, the Ouija board... Why do you, why do people go to the Ouija board? That's always a rookie mistake. It never goes well. In fact, I would never, my wife and I both, we would never have a Ouija board. Like, I would never have been near one. And we often talk about this when we watch horror movies, you know, people using the Ouija boards. It's just such an obvious, uh, stupid thing to do when you're trying, like, when you're summoning, like, some sort of spirit with the board. I, I mean, why does everyone do this? Why does this all always happen <laughs> you know i don't know 
but I expected Ouija from <laughs> Tail of Laughing the Dark. In the dark that nice. chest. I yeah. was like, he's he's coming back. It's got to be because what are the odds that they're coming back to the Ouija board? I must have must have been big back then. I mean, it's it's not as big now, but I remember being a thing back then. But yeah, I've never never messed with that. Never will. And I'll stay away from it. I would especially stay away from it if it gave me answers to the question of, hey, open this chest. And it literally was the combination. I would would stay away from that. And if I didn't and I went in, I would certainly react slightly afraid, which Amy did not. She was very calm and collected about it throughout the whole time. So I do want to say it's hilarious that this mom who's super protective of her daughter, right, because her sister ended up dying in in a horse accident, that the second the daughter's about to go on a horse. She honks her horn in the most obnoxious way possible to spook the horse to actually cause the injury to her daughter. That would have killed her. Yeah, what like, was she what thinking? Are you doing? I was I was thinking the same thing. That was such a, the wrong reaction to have. I don't even know. The mom obviously, you know, is traumatized from what happened to her sister. And then, like we said, somehow then through the events that happen um, with the girls, they solve that. And then the mom suddenly, I guess, is also free of this, this anxiety that she had over it. If you're in that situation, that is the last thing that you want to do. But yeah, she clearly uh, spooks the horse. And that could have easily just been the end of the story right there. This Pam falls and she's dead, and that could have been it. I will say his family's a little messed up too because that tombstone that says, As you are, so is I, as I am, so you will be. I mean, that's what you're going to go to the grave with in this family. What a troll. I mean, you're basically <laughs> like, You're going to die. I used to be alive too. You're going to die. Take that. I mean, that is not a very inspirational message. And of course, Amy reacts in a way of like, Oh, no big deal. I always think that on tombstones like that because you see that in in some other movies or shows too and then it makes me think would i want to troll people like that too and i mean it's tempting i mean you know to think about like causing a discomfort in everybody that walks past like to force them to wrestle with their eventual demise i mean i don't know it's sort of um it's it's sort of a funny way to like remain relevant in a way because people will pay attention to you, to your to like to your spot and like what it says there i don't know i'm i i would consider it that's all i'm saying Okay, so the last rating of the episode we have from IMDb is 7.1. So a lot of elements to this one that don't quite come together. There's a bit of confusion, at least on our parts, over unless we missed something over how all this is exactly tying together and not great acting from Amy. So it's it's tricky. There are some things that are cool, like Giles. I think that even though he's only there for such a brief time, he has that iconic line, and I do like that actor. I like him also in the next episode that he's in as well. And he's actually in even another episode, which is the station, the tale of Station 109.1. He has a sort of a, a bit of a... Well, I was going to say smaller part, but it's, it's actually relevant to the plot though so we'll see him probably a couple more times. This is one where I like seeing the dogs uh, because... I thought they were cute. So overall, lots of weaknesses, a couple strengths here and there. I stuck with the IMDb rating, 7.1, and I don't really know what else to do with this one. I think it's as middle of the road as you can get. I I don't, I wasn't displeased watching it, but I wasn't really entertained that much either. So I think a low C is, is a pretty good score. 
Yeah, so I I really enjoyed Pam's emergence here and and her kind of delving into Dora's character. I think she did a really good job. I enjoyed her, you know, going to the blast in the past. I love Giles. I love the interaction trying to figure out the mystery behind the death of Dora. Did not like Amy. I did not see a lot of the tie-ins with regard to the Hungry Hounds and Dora's blame for it. I think this really could have been a great episode based around the, why didn't you feed the hounds? That repeat really stuck with me. S- super spooky. It, it was It's very haunting, honestly. But unfortunately, the story didn't lend itself to me feeling any blame towards Dora about not feeding the hounds. And so that didn't really connect with me. But I, again, I, I did this blind. I gave it an 8.2. And I will say this, I will say this. I, I regret the rating because when I first watched the episode, I just, I gave a rating and then I go back after my initial notes and kind of try to flesh them out. And I realized, wow, there's a lot more plot holes here than I originally thought. And instead of retroactively changing my rating, I just went with my gut. I went with what I originally felt based on the episodes that I had seen at the time. And we went in the order that we did it in this episode, as well as the ones we did previously. So I gave it an 8.2. I do regret that though. I think it's probably more 7.5, but I don't want to, I don't want to recreate my methodology to fit how I feel towards the end. My initial reaction was 8.2 because I think there's tons of cool elements to it. But at the end of the day, doing a deep dive, the themes, the connections and the plots weren't there. But again, Possession was really cool. You know, the return to this this past was really cool. The graveyard, Giles, the hounds, very cool elements, but it was lacking that the plot devices that I wish it had. If you're hungry for more, are you afraid of the dark? Go back and check out our episode too. After that, keep an eye out for our next new episode, and we'll see you next time. Follow us on Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast and Twitter at the Nostalgic MP. And don't forget to send your comments and questions, which may be featured on a future episode. Until next time, when we return to the 1990s.